This is David Wilson and welcome to episode 26 of Honour the Track. Welcome to On Another Track with me, David Wilson, exploring people and places from around the world. A podcast series that takes you where you've never been and probably where you never want to go. On Another Track is talking to people we can't meet with face to face. We use remote video technology and software to see what they have to say. It was just great to have you on board. I know you've been really busy and I thought, oh, I've got to get Don on because I know you've got so many great things to say and you've been working on all this computer security stuff, which I'm intrigued about. You know, I'm always happy to take phone calls from people. I do a lot of volunteer work for a, a friend of mine who's a lawyer, mainly for First Nations groups. And, and quite often she gets me on the phone with people just to answer questions about, you know, IT or computers. That's the voice of Don Ashton. He's a cyber security expert. I first met Don when we were driving vintage streetcars down at Fort Edmonton Park, would you believe? I also had the pleasure of working with Don in a sales company selling traffic products, but that was six or seven years ago and I was intrigued to find out what he'd been doing in the interim period. Little did I know that he became a cyber security expert and engineer. That's where he's been helping companies and voluntary organizations keep their systems secure from viruses. If you've ever wanted a career in cyber security, then listen to Don. I first started by asking Don where his job fitted in in the cybersecurity industry. In, in the most simple terms is within the cybersecurity world, there's, there's typically kind of three positions in a, from a very high level overview, of course, there's, there's kind of like your analysts, they look at logs all day, they try and find threats or determine if there's any risks um, that are active. And then you have an engineer or someone like myself, and I, I really take care of kind of the compliance the governance, the regulatory, and kind of the infrastructure side of things. So really laying that down the foundations and providing the tools and the infrastructure for the analysts to do their job on um, and making sure that all that infrastructure and, and some of our processes are adhering to the right, you know, compliance and standards. So depending, you know, if you're a healthcare company or a finance company, you'll have like a different set of uh, regulations to to kind of adhere to. And then, you know, above me is kind of like an architect, someone who kind of oversees the whole program. So that's that's kind of a simple term, but my job is mainly just working on the infrastructure, tools, process, and kind of training people um, and, and really working with auditors, kind of being that, that middleman between management for a company and, and auditors sort of thing. Perfect. That's a great explanation. And thanks for keeping it really simple because you didn't lose me on that one. So how the heck do you get into a job like cybersecurity engineer? How did that happen for Don Ashton? <laughs> yeah, it's funny you ask. It's it's uh it's kind of an unorthodox path uh, that I took, but thankfully um, I'm in an industry that doesn't really have a, a set path to kind of, you know, get from point A to point B. And, and the reason, the reason that is, is a lot of schools have a hard time teaching cybersecurity because it's always changing so fast that what you might learn today, four years later, there's going to be a total new overhaul of tools and infrastructure and processes. So it's it really is kind of a challenge to train people. And what you've seen in kind of the community and the industry as a whole is an evolution of people who are working in the industry kind of creating platforms to help teach other people um, about, you know, the, the realities of cybersecurity and how to develop these skills, which really comes down to repetition. You know, you don't have to be a really smart guy 
for example, to be in cybersecurity. But if you're good at repetition, like if you played sports as a kid and you were comfortable kicking a ball at the net a hundred times every day to, you know, just to improve that goal shot, like you're someone who can do well in, in cybersecurity. Because a lot of it just comes down to reflexes and, and muscle memory and even just intuition. But my path, I actually have no education. You know, I don't, I don't have a degree. I don't have a diploma. Funny enough, I started one day volunteering with like a local security group here in Edmonton. And what they did is they just, it's called the EGSEC, by the way. So if anyone's in Edmonton and you want to get involved in the, the Edmonton cybersecurity group, you can just look up EGSEC, Y-E-G-S-E-C. And it's just the, it's the community of really majority of the people who work in cybersecurity in Edmonton come together. And, you know, there's just talks there. People get together, they have a social night and they, and, and they network. And I kind of joined these guys and I was really interested in the kind of like the hands-on technical sides and, um, I remember one day there was this cybersecurity competition coming to Edmonton being held at Nate and a couple of the guys from this Yagsec group who, you know, they're senior security guys. They had asked me if I wanted to join um, and just kind of come along and see what it's about. And, you know, they, they kind of preface like we can't let you use a computer or anything because we can only have five people actively participating in the in the challenges. But you can kind of show up and, and, and hang out and we're happy to kind of teach you and and, you know, point things out to you. So I was kind of this caddy, right? I kind of fetched people water, took their orders, cleaned computers for them, you know, park, reparked their cars or fed the meters, right? So I was, I was just kind of the, you know, the caddy for Tiger Woods, for example, right? And, you know, it was, it was kind of silly, but I got to learn a lot and be around some cool people. And that really opened this door into this whole world of all these training platforms, even platforms put out by various government agencies to really just help train people in cybersecurity, because there is a global struggle and a global shortage of cybersecurity talent. And that's because it's it's very difficult to train someone. You can go to school, but going to school doesn't prepare you for a lifetime of learning in an industry that changes so fast where you're always having to learn, right? So you could, you could kind of sum it up and say that my experience was gamified um, in the sense that I spent a lot of time on these, these platforms. And it was kind of like a video game for me. You know, I just, I knew if I just, if I just kept practicing over and over and over again, you know, and spent two, three hours a night every day, you know, instead of playing video games, I would develop these skills. And maybe instead of becoming great at video games, I could become great at something that was a little useful in the world. And, and, you know, then things just kind of, uh, I guess, started to take off. And I was invited out to some competitions after placing well with the team and in various cybersecurity competitions. Um, And then that led to one thing led to another, it kind of led to you know, me getting my name out there a little bit, and then employers start to notice and they start to contact you for a junior role. And then it's, you know, you just kind of snowball from there once you kind of get your foot in the door sort of thing. And it's, you know, it's all been rather magical. Like I, you know, I have to say I had no expectations. I mean, if you asked Donald, even five, six years ago, if I thought I'd be working in cybersecurity, you know, I would have told you, Hey, I'm really going to try, but I don't like, I don't think I'm going to get there. It seems really hard, you know? That That's a really interesting story, but you know, what you've just illustrated is that how achievable it is for somebody like you had freely admitted, you didn't have any formal education after what, grade 12, probably, or technical college. Yeah, nothing. So really what you did is you're learning on the job and there's very few places you can go these days to learn on the job and qualify as you go along. Cause that's really what you've been doing, isn't it? Yeah. And, and just a point to that, anyone to, uh, who's listening right now, I'll make sure to to incorporate some resources that uh, perhaps David, you can somehow broker to people, or even if I just verbally rattle them off at the end of the podcast, just to really, you know, like it really is my goal to pass on these resources to as many people out there um, who are trying to get into the industry. And, you know, maybe you can't afford a degree or you can't afford to get a master's degree, right? Like, you know, if you're willing to sit down and put some grit in, you know, I'll give you all the resources you need to kind of, to kind of get there. 
Perfect. That'd be fantastic. And we'll definitely put them uh, at the end of the show, uh, write up notes as well. That's not a problem. Okay. But what captured your imagination? You did hint a little bit. It was a bit like gaming for you, but what really got you intrigued and what would make you stay up for hours at night to solve the problem? What were some of the key things that really got you hooked? Yeah. So I'd say the key thing, David, was actually the community. Um, I found that the community of people within the cybersecurity realm is typically people are are older. Like you don't have a, a lot of young people like fresh out of school in the community. They're kind of doing their own thing, right? Trying to find their way. But you have a lot of people who are in their, like a lot of people in their forties, for example, I'd say who've, who've kind of re- been around the block and, you know, they do know a lot, but a lot of these guys are very humble, um, you know, given like a lot of their salaries and how much they know, you know, I, I was quite surprised to find out that just how humble these guys were and how willing they were to teach um, pass on information and, and share knowledge. And I really found as a community that um, I could just be a part of, um, hey, because I'm kind of quirky, I'm kind of a nerdy guy. And, you know, I like to wear shirts with, you know, I got an astronaut with some balloons. So, you know, you can't, can't really see it. I mean, I can stand up there, but... <laughs> You've not changed. I can tell the <laughs> listeners of that. Yeah, that's what attracted me to you as a, a salesperson, actually, when you were involved with uh, with our sales organization many years ago. But anyway, sorry, I interrupt you. Carry on. Yeah, and uh, you know the community was was big. Like there are so many people willing to help if you're just willing to to show up, ask the questions. And you know, I felt right at home. There's all these other weird guys, you know. So I didn't feel like a you know if you put me at a table surrounded by guys wearing suits, for example, like a bunch of guys off Wall Street, you know, I'd be really uncomfortable. For example, I. I you know, I'd have a hard time, I think, fitting in, but you put me around all these, you know, all these nerds who are just interested in, in learning and talking about tech stuff. And I found that I was really able to kind of fit in and, and you know, call the community my, my second home in a sense, because I got along with so many of these people. And I can't take credit for, for what I've done that's kind of gotten me to where I am. It's, it's just the community in general and just how many people in this, in this industry, even worldwide, who are willing to help out. And they really fueled me to help get me to that next level, you know, as opposed to anything creative or sophisticated that I did, which, you know, definitely didn't happen. (laughs) So you alluded earlier on to how big the threat is regarding cybersecurity worldwide. What's your opinion on where the biggest threats are coming from, from your experience and your knowledge so far? Yes, that's that's a really good question. And I, I get that a lot. Um, and, you know, and I hate to say it, like, I'd love to sit here and, and talk about some really cool state sponsored malware or extremely intelligent written code or some super sophisticated attacks and networks. But unfortunately, that's not the case. And the biggest threat is just phishing emails, right? Just kind of clicking that link in your email. Tell us, as the lay people who just receive emails on a daily basis, Number one, what should we be looking out for? But number two, what happens when you physically click that link? What's going to happen within the program or the network that uh, makes it such a, a problem? Yeah, I kind of have an elevator pitch around it. If you're using your email, for example, and, and you click on a link, even if it's a, a link like google.com, when, when you go to a website, it's kind of like walking into a grocery store. You've essentially consented for people in the grocery store to communicate with you, interact with you, to be, you know, if there's video cameras there, you've consented to be on camera. And it's kind of like when you go to a website, you essentially consented for that website to interact with your computer, to talk to you, to record some of what you're doing. And when you click these suspicious links, inherently your computer trusts the website because it trusts you to make the judgment call whether you want to go there or not. So when you do click this suspicious link and you do end up on this um, website, what tends to happen is because your computer inherently will trust these websites, these websites will just kind of send malicious code to your computer. And your computer doesn't know better. Your computer says, hey, 
you know, Donald wanted me to go to this website, so I'm going to go to the website. But by virtue of having to go to this website, I have to kind of accept some default uh, parameters. And it's it's that kind of it's that trust between a computer and a website where we get into trouble because it happens to me too. Sometimes I accidentally, you know, I'll be googling something and I'll click on a link and realize, oh, that was a bad link, and I'll be on some server and you know, or some website in another country. And then I'm getting an antivirus pop off my computer. And I'm thinking, aye, 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 what's going on here? Right. But that's kind of the simplest terms is, you know, just, just clicking on these links that can bring you to a, a website where malicious code can be downloaded on your computer. And from there, typically an attacker will try and download malicious code that gives them access to your computer. And then, you know, from there, the first thing they'll do is try and circumvent or shut down your antivirus. And then they'll try and to establish persistence and try and just expand their hold on your computer and find out, hey, what other devices communicate with this computer or who else is on the network? And from there, they kind of what's it's called living off the land. It's just kind of working with what you got and and expanding your arsenal from there with, you know, as opposed to downloading all these tools onto this newly infected device or whatever. Right. And in reality, how quick can that happen? If we're talking that we get a link and say, hey, Dave, you've got to pay this bill because we're trying to do a delivery and it's imminent. And if we don't do it now, guess what? It's going to be sent back to, you know, whoever's posted it. If I clicked on that, how quick can this happen? Is it milliseconds? Is it over days? If we immediately click on it and realize it's wrong, can we stop it? Or is that is that too late? Although it can happen very fast, typically these attacks will... If a malicious file is downloaded, for example, it'll sit there for a day or two because the attackers know that when you click on a suspicious link, once you realize you you clicked on a suspicious link, you might try and run an antivirus or you might be a little more diligent than normal. So quite often they'll try and hide on the system for a period of time and then collect data. And then what happens is called the phoning home portion. And that's just where the malware contacts the person who distributed it and said, hey, I'm here and I have a foothold, please send me instructions. So quite often I find that the phoning home portion comes much after the malware has been delivered to the device. And, and often the malware will, will kind of sit there and gather information without talking to the owner. But then once it has some, maybe two days or three days, sometimes it's even months, it'll then what's called phone back home, you know, and just like ET phones back home, malware phones back home, right? Um, and it's the same type of thing, but realistically, this could happen in under 10 seconds, you know, if, if you, if you wanted it to, like you click that link and then that, that kind of backdoor is established and the attacker gets a notification and they're, you know, suddenly connecting to your computer and kind of looking around in the background. Got you. And so just to give the listeners a sort of like a, I don't know, a two or three step plan, you know, if you think, okay, um, I've clicked a, a bad link, I'm not sure. What are some of the obvious signs that you start to see on your computer? What would be the things that you've seen from your experience that says something's running in the background or something's happening? Like one of the biggest signs is when you start your computer up is if you see any windows quickly open and close, that can be a sign you're infected even if it's just simple adware, but the reason why is quite often malware, adware, spideware, it embeds itself in your computer as a scheduled task upon startup. So every time your computer starts up, it starts up and quite often you'll see a little window flash and go away really quick. And the easiest way to get rid of it is to really just download antivirus. Cause to be honest, David, again, it's, it's not so much sophistication that wins the day, but it's a numbers game, just like sales, right? You make a hundred cold calls, you know, you maybe get 10 appointments. One of those people is a buyer. Well, if you're a bad guy and you get 100 people to click your suspicious link, out of those 10 people, you know, maybe who, who do click it, maybe five of them, their antivirus is out of date or they don't have antivirus and they're the people who are going to get affected. 
you know, so it's not so sophisticated so much as a numbers game. And really just having basic antivirus turned on is, is, is going to save you about 90% of the time. I hate to say it. You know, I know all these sophisticated attack techniques, but man, you get a computer without antivirus, you don't need any sophistication. So it's quite basic, isn't it? It is. It's nothing sophisticated. And that's actually a, a, quite a surprise for me. I never realized that, you know. Okay, tell me something. And I don't know if you've done this research. Where did the first viruses come about that were on computer systems? Have you ever done that kind of digging back in the history and see when the first one really made an effect on the world? You know, was it on Windows? Was it on an Apple computer? Or was it on a Unix system? I don't know. Or whatever system that, that it had way back in the 80s and 90s. Although I might not be talking to the first virus, but from, from all, some of the books that I've read, the, the examples that I can think of is kind of the earliest introduction of viruses. Um, this is quite funny, but was, it would have been back in the day, I think in the, I think in the eighties or nineties, don't quote me. Cause you know, I was, I was born in 89. So, you know, some of this was happening before I was um, born in a sense, but the first virus that I, I personally know of is a virus that was delivered to printers um, over the internet before the internet was secure, you know, in a sense, people could find your printers and communicate with them, but people would make your printer print off hundreds of pages or just nonstop, or they could choose what it printed off. So they could kind of, you know, quote unquote, troll you or kind of play a joke and just force your, your printers to start printing a lot of stuff. And I even remember in school, I think it was 2013, this had happened in, in junior high. And I remember the computer teacher was just complaining because our, our printer had had a virus. So the network had a virus, but all I remember is the printer kept printing. Like I didn't know much about viruses then, but the printer kept printing stuff off whenever we put paper in and we had to get a new one. And, and the computer teacher was pretty upset. That's kind of the first virus, which was really just a couple of guys having fun, you know, playing a prank. Yeah. Right. Um, and that's really evolved from, you know, playing pranks to just generating tons of money through, through ransomware and extortion. Right. So it, it kind of started off as something fun, like, Hey, look, I can tell your printer, you know, to print these funny pages off and, you know, now it's kind of gone to the next level. You're halfway through listening to Honor on the Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week is Donald Ashdan, your cybersecurity specialist and engineer. Next, I wanted to ask Donald about his interest in driving vintage streetcars. And where did his ancestral roots come from? looking back, I, I really do have a lot of memories of walking train tracks with my dad and just, just kind of looking for, you know, whether it's spikes or parts of trains, just, just kind of any artifacts to do with, you know, trains at the time. And, and he always had such a strong interest. And I remember being really young when he bought me this really cool train set, you know, that we got in and it came with just such a, so many track pieces. We were able to just build a massive train track and you know we kind of put some cool um, landscaping in there I think we made some mountains if I recall or there was some type of, of decorations we added but you know and I think I think around then is when Thomas the Tank Engine started to become a thing so you know it was kind of like striking the iron while it was hot right like I was really into Thomas the Tank Engine there was a train that had the same name as me Donald and that was one of Thomas's friends that's right I felt like I could identify and relate to this train you know and then I think it just like the momentum kept going when my dad got me uh, a really cool train set that I, I, you know, there's a photo of me wearing like a, a train conductor outfit at, at a very early age. It must've been like four or five. I still had a mushroom bowl haircut, all my hair. And, you know, I had a little train conductor hat on in my uniform and I'd wear it every time we played trains. Right. So 
I think it always kind of went went back for me. And even as an older guy, you know, as, as I kind of grew up, I'd start to look for opportunities to put pennies down on trains, you know, when I was in my teens or, or like on the train tracks to try and yeah. get that, that flattened penny, because that was something desirable for me, you know, having grown up kind of around trains and, you know, and then I think that kind of led into an interest in driving streetcars, which of course is where I met you and, you know, just had so much fun driving around Fort Edmonton and, and being a part of that community. Yeah, and just so the listeners know, Fort Edmonton is actually a historic uh, location within the city of Edmonton here in Alberta, which basically has moved a lot of buildings actually from around Alberta to a central location, which is in the River Valley, isn't it, of Edmonton? And uh, they've actually got an infrastructure there that actually has streetcar or tramcar tracks, as we call them in Europe. And also they have a, a steam railway as well that runs down there. So when it is fully open, it's actually a great place to take the children. But also it needs a, a ton of volunteers. And I mean, I can't remember how many volunteers we had within the Edmonton Radio Railway Society, but it was probably running into the kind of low 80s to, you know, up to just under 100 people in order to run a train service or a streetcar service on a weekend, you know, and sometimes during the week as well. So it was great. It has great memories for me. But I'd like to rewind a little bit further back as well. So do you know much about the family history, where the Ashdowns come from and on your mum's side as well, where her family came from? Have you ever done the delving back into the ancestry to find out where, where you all came from originally? I'm familiar with a little, and and from what I understand is, I read a book that my grandpa wrote called From Scottish Roots. So, you know, the title kind of gives it away from from Scotland, uh, a family kind of migrated over over to Alberta. And, you know, and and then for my dad's side, um, they're they're mainly based in in Toronto. And he stems from the Hackshaw family. A few had migrated to Canada. And then I believe it was one of the Hackshaw's sons had moved to Australia. But that's kind of what I initially recall when I think way, way back is, is from Scotland on my mom's side. And then on my dad's side was settling down in, in Canada, but kind of migrating out to uh, Australia. And then I think it was somewhere, somewhere in Europe, like a, a, just a little island somewhere. I really wish I could remember the name. And your dad actually has quite an interesting, um, well, I suppose, employment, technically, I suppose. He, um, he did originally write, I think, submissions when I first met him for applications to the federal and the provincial government for people doing grant applications, which is a very specialised job. But tell the listeners now what he does now, what he's retrained to do. Yes, he's a deacon within the, the Catholic Church. So he underwent the diaconic studies program for three years and then kind of came out of that as a deacon. And, and if you don't know, that's kind of like the, the right hand man to a priest. So it's about as high up as you can be within the Catholic church without being a, a priest in order for that, my mom would have to pass away, you know, and then he could potentially apply to be a priest, for example, but he's been spending a lot of time doing that, you know, so that, that entails duties like holding mass, giving the homily, performing baptisms, doing funerals, and, and then just being a part of the church community as well. And, and getting involved. I think that's something that he really appreciates and values, you know, as something to do while he's retired to kind of give him a break from the streetcars. You know, he he often jokes that he doesn't feel like he's retired between streetcars and, you know, being a deacon because he stays so busy, right? But it's good, you know, that in a sense, that's kind of what you want. So let's bring things up today. If somebody is looking at investing in a computer, be it a, a Mac or a PC type of device, from your perspective, what's uh, a great way of setting people up so they don't fall foul of cyber 
security issues and malwares and things like that. What is your kind of three-step plan that you would suggest to people? You've got your new computer. What should you be looking at? Yeah, you know, it's a really, it's a really good question. I get asked that a, a lot by friends and family who are, who are concerned about these issues, especially when you see in the news, you know, this cyber attack or that cyber attack. And, you know, the reality to take a step back for a second is that cyber criminals want to get paid. So if they're going to invest all this time and, and work as an organized group to kind of attack a target or go after someone's computer, there has to be something in it for them. So typically the average person like you or myself, we don't have to worry about our personal devices being compromised so much, but we have to worry more about our, our work devices being compromised because a work device if that's compromised that can lead to, you know, spreading on the network and other work devices and ultimately high value assets, servers, or, you know, backend information like that. So there's kind of a, a separation between whether you're at work or you're, or you're personal, but people who are using a personal device, typically the thing you want to be more cautious of when you're using personal devices is anything that might kind of act as a tracker or spyware. And it's just going to follow you on the internet, gather information on what you do and report back. And we've I won't name any, but we've heard of kind of scams or incidents in the news where people are collecting our information and selling it without a, you know, us knowing about it. And, and that's kind of the thing that we want to be the most mindful of, because with that information, people can extort you individually. Even if you're just a normal guy like myself, you know, if, you know, if someone finds out that I've maybe been on a, on a website that I might be embarrassed for people to know, they could, you know, potentially use that against me and extort me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of the three-step program for the average person is you know, really just to make sure you have antivirus on your computer. I always recommend downloading the Brave browser or adding an ad blocker to your browser. So the Brave browser has a built-in ad blocker, for example, but having that antivirus and ad blocker is going to be the biggest thing there. And then the third thing is just make sure your computer is up to date. Windows and Microsoft really does push out a lot of good information. And I know people always get upset, right, David? I'm sure it's you've experienced too, is you get that pop-up to do a, a Windows update and you're thinking, oh, this is the worst time to do it. I'm in a meeting, I'm trying to watch a YouTube show, or I'm, you know, I'm in a rush. And but those Windows updates really do just keep keep the computer safe and secure because most people don't know, but Windows has a really powerful antivirus system that's built into your computer and it's powerful. Like I have test labs that, you know, with different antivirus tools and the Windows one really does perform well. And if anyone doesn't know, Windows 10 is free. So if you have Windows 7 or, you know, Windows 8, if you just download Windows 10, there is no charge to use it. And this is just a change that Microsoft made at, at one point. There's some speculation as to why they made it, but regardless of that, it is free. So you can just download it and load it on your computer and it's going to come with the antivirus and anti-malware services that you need. You know, kind of recapping, like really the three things are just making sure that you have that antivirus or, you know, making sure Windows antivirus is enabled, making sure you have an ad blocker for your browser or use something like the Brave browser, which has built-in ad blockers. If you don't maybe know how to go and, and add an ad blocker in the Brave browser, is just like it sounds, B-R-A-V-E. Um, and it's just a picture of an orange lion. Um, and then the third thing is just do your Windows updates because Windows really is trying to protect you against, you know, a lot of the nonsense that's out there. And that was brilliant advice. The one thing I did want to pick up on, and this is, I think is very relevant for a lot of people. If somebody does try to extort you, and you've probably come across this before, and, and you were very frank about it. If it's a, a website that you you feel a bit embarrassed about going on, maybe it's something that you just don't want other people to know because you, know, you want to be private about it. If you have somebody who's trying to extort you and say, right, well, I've got a photograph of you, or I've got a video of you, or I've got some analog sound of you, and I'm going to you know put that out to the world, and I want you know $500 worth of, I don't know, Bitcoin or whatever it is. I don't know if that's the right expression. 
what can you do? I mean, what's the first thing that you should do, do you think? What's your advice? You know, so that's a, a tricky one. And a really, I guess, good example was, you know, uh, every, you know, most people know about the website Ashley Madison, and that was kind of an affairs website, right? And they were actually, in case people don't know, they were hacked a while ago, and a lot of information was dumped. So here's kind of the catch-22, is a lot of people made a lot of money through unsophisticated techniques. And what these people would do, David, is they would go on the dark web. And if you don't know, the dark web is just kind of the place for criminals, where all the bad stuff happens. People would go there, and they would pay, say, $10 for, you know, 100 hacked accounts on Ashley Madison, and they would look through these accounts, find out who owns this account, what they do for work, who their family is, you know, and if they, you know, maybe found someone who held public office or someone who had a wife, you know, all of a sudden these bad guys saw grounds for extortion. Now, what the funny thing is, is that on the back end, the information these hackers got wasn't that great. It wasn't necessarily profile pictures or big profile descriptions. It was a very small amount of info. So in some cases, it was just someone's email that wasn't that didn't even have their name in the email, but the person had used their real name for the registration. So what these hackers were doing is they were going around messaging people saying, hey, Ashley Madison was hacked. I have your information. And if you don't pay me, I'm going to tell your wife. I'm going to go to the media. But what happens, a lot of people paid these attackers without realizing that the attackers didn't have really anything, you know, because the, the attackers were sales guys. They were playing it up, you know, like we got photos of you. We got the videos you uploaded. But they, in fact, didn't get a lot of that. A lot of it was just an email and a name, but they were really exploiting the fear factor here and the confidentiality. But if you had taken the time to do some research, even reach out to Ashley Madison to say, hey, I'm being you know, targeted, you know, someone's doing this, can you verify what information was leaked? You'd find out that like 90% of the information the attacker claimed to have, they didn't actually have. So I think in these situations, the best thing you can kind of do is verify if they have any information or even ask for proof, because quite often these guys are just, just like it's a numbers game. They're just going to, you know, message a, a hundred people and try and pressure them and apply fear tactics to extort them. And really they don't have what they're saying they do, but you know, they're sitting there knowing that you can't really verify that as a lay person, but in fact you can, you just reach out to these companies. Um, or if you even just reach out to a consulting firm, a lot of consulting firms will charge a one-time fee, small fee, maybe a couple hundred dollars. And they'll tell you and, you know, an hour, you know, if, if you're actually at risk to being exposed, because they can look to see where your information was dumped, if it was dumped, what information, and you can, of course, Google that, you know, yourself, you can just say like, you know, there's a website called have I been pwned, and that just shows if your account credentials have been leaked anywhere on the internet, for example. So that'd kind of be my advice. Often as not, like you say, that the, they're basically just throwing the net really wide. They're doing the scattergun approach and hoping somebody will fall for it. Uh, but, you know, I suppose at the end of the day, if you really seriously think that you've been scammed or you've been, you know, your information has been taken, I suppose ultimately you can approach the police as well, because at the end of the day, they have various um, departments within different police services that can help with the cybercrime as well. That's another option, I imagine, if you're really worried, um, you can approach the, the authorities. Yeah. And on that note, contacting local authorities might not go as far as, as you'd like it to. But there is a kind of a hotline and a general support line that you can contact about cybercrime. So it's with the Canadian Centre for Cybersecurity, and they have a report a cyber incident option. Excellent. And you go on here and you specify, are you an individual, a small or medium organization? You know, and it's going to ask you, um, you know, various topics like is this to do with spam, social media, child exploitation, online extremism, terrorism, cybercrime, phishing, and they just have the whole list. 
right? So you can you can go there and file a report, and that's going to be the best place to start. And it, and it's good to call local authorities as well. Um, but I think that they can't necessarily take it as far as your uh, respective government. So I, I like the United States and the UK has a similar report of cybercrime, and you know even for individuals um, to kind of report those. So that's always kind of the best place to start. And somebody will get back to you, not in all instances. But, you know, in in many instances, even if it's just a piece of advice or just kind of letting you know that they've seen this trend elsewhere, that's typically the best place to go. Okay, thanks for that. And we will put some links at the end of the broadcast, like we said, and uh, so people can follow. So if somebody is looking to get into this industry, I mean, you did allude to some of the key features. If you're good at, say, a sport or you're good at, you know, being tenacious, I suppose that's the important thing. Or things like um, things intrigue you have that inquiring mind then that could be something that could help you get into this industry. But what have you done over the years to help you, you know, grease those rails and make it a smooth ride into the industry? Is it about, like you say, to, you know, meeting up with a team of people who do this, you know, or, or is it competitions? Because I know you're a big competitor, aren't you, when it comes to doing these hacking competitions, or I don't know if that's the right name, but, you know, they'll give you a scenario. Here's this sort of security scenario. Now break the code. Am I right in thinking that some of the things that you do, have I got that terminology right? Yeah, yeah, no, that's the that's the right terminology. And to kind of give an example is the security world is so filled with these competitions that even the Canadian government had a security competition. And if you had just participated, you got an email after saying, hey, you know, could you please apply for these roles within, you know, the intelligence agency or with, or with the Canadian government? We'd love to hear from you, you know, but, but that even spreads to organizations like Google. Google hosts... Um, an annual competition as well. And a lot of these companies do, including the UK government. The UK government has a whole program kind of focused around gamification to teach people from a young age and within high school and to build up those skills. And you'll see a lot of these companies, like a lot of big security companies as well, host these competitions. But there's a website called ctftime.org. And these competitions are happening so regularly. And virtually every university that has a cybersecurity program also hosts these competitions. And there's usually prizes aren't a lot, but for example, a big one coming up here that's happening next Monday that I'm, pre- I'm getting mentally prepared for is called the, it, it's with the US Air Force Hack a Satellite Competition. And it's all focused around, I can't even tell you the terms because they're all scientific and, and astro physical uh it's 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 not so much hacking related but it's the ability to adapt and learn quickly on the fly um in relation to how satellites work as you progress through a series of challenges and as you progress through the series of challenges you'll learn about the different components of a satellite ultimately bringing you to a final challenge where if your team does place in the top 10 you'll be selected to participate in the finals and you'll get flown out to i i forget where but where you actually get the real opportunity to interface with a live satellite and try and hack it against the other top competing teams. I mean, I'm a geek as well, right? And I think that's so exciting, you know, for a young person coming up through, you know, through grade 12, not sure what they want to do, where they want to go to technical college or university. But, you know, if they've got an interest in computers and they've got that tenacious ability to dive into something and really solve a problem and not get turned away by the first broken bridge or whatever it is, but find alternative routes around, this could be a good career, couldn't it? It could be a really good career for them. Yeah, it can it can definitely be a good career. And, you know, I think all good things have to come to an end. But right now we're in kind of that emerging, like it's an emerging industry and it's trending. So the demand is growing quicker than, you know, the available skills and workers in this industry. So it is kind of a hot time to get in the industry. And, and it, it probably will be like this for, you know, a few decades until we see the workforce 
really shift to taking on more of a technical role as, as people go through school and kind of learn their crafts, you know, because that's just, we're seeing the world moving in that direction. So right now is a really good time to get on board because, you know, like a, if you do some research, you'll learn pretty quick. Even if you search up like, you know, Indeed is a big um, website that that posts jobs. If you go, if you search up Indeed cybersecurity statistics, you'll see there's this really big divergence between the amount of people applying for cybersecurity jobs and the amount of cybersecurity jobs being posted on there. And the gap's only widening. So, you know, if you're a young guy and, you know, you're not sure maybe how to make your mark in this world or what you're going to do for work, you know, if you if you go down the cybersecurity role, road, you know, in a sense, there's there's competitive people, there's less competition, and there's a lot of room to grow and a lot of ways to learn these skills without having to invest a ton of money in going to school. Now, going to school is great, and I in some ways wish I could have gone to school. It probably would have made things easier, but, you know, if you're someone who who maybe doesn't have that as an option, you know, I know a lot of great guys who've never been to school, and they're just, you know, they're working very high up. They're making more than I'll ever earn. But that's really great. And again, like we'll just clarify, it's not just open to guys. That's a terminology that we're using, but it's open to across the, the, the sexes, across the diverse cultures that we have in the world. It doesn't matter who you are. Yeah. If you've got the right aptitude towards it, male, female, whatever the color you are, you can go for this and actually be very successful. Yeah. And do you know what? There's a, a website for women in cybersecurity, because what I am seeing in the industry is it's no secret that some Sometimes guys, you know, I think men are very different from women and, you know, sometimes having too many guys or too much testosterone isn't a good thing. So we are seeing kind of a trend of companies looking to, to try and bring in women into this industry, but I think it, it is typically a heavily male dominated industry. So it's not very inviting for a female, for example. So there are a lot of initiatives and there's, there's a website called womencybersecuritysociety.org and it's Canada's first and only um, women in cybersecurity nonprofit. And it's just, it, it's kind of like an online ecosystem that supports women throughout the life cycle of their career and gets them in touch with employers and other women in cybersecurity. And I think that's really healthy because I think sometimes there can be situations where, you know, it can be too toxic to have, you know, a whole bunch of guys, you know, just kind of like the old boys club. And that can be hard to break into, especially if you're not old and you're not a guy, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, if, if you're a woman, so I, I definitely recommend the Women's Cybersecurity Society Okay, I'm going to ask you a couple of final questions because I know time is rolling on. If you had your crystal ball, right, and you're looking at it at the moment, where do you see the next leap in cybersecurity? Where is it going? And where's where's the kind of you know the virus side of things going or the malware side of things going? But what are you guys doing to counteract it? What what do you see coming on the horizon? A really good question, and I think you know, unfortunately, David, is that for the world to evolve and adapt to these, you know, cyber incidents, which we're seeing pretty often now, like, you know, if you ask a lot of people, you know, what's, have you seen a cyber incident in the news? Most people will say yes. Or the most recent one was, I, I don't want to say the company, but it was a recent food company. It was, uh, they processed and, and manufactured beef and they got hit with a really big cyber attack that cost them a uh, $11 million US. And these are just the ones we hear about. Like I know, I know about a lot that never made it public because, you know, these companies don't want it to go public. Fair enough. It looks bad. It's not good for shareholders, but these are happening so often. And unfortunately companies don't take the proper responses until something happens, you know, and fair enough to them. It's, it's a very hard to explain to someone or to show them the risk because people do keep this on the, on the DL companies don't want it getting out if they've been hacked. So it's not as common as you think, but I really think attackers kind of take advantage of this. And where we're going to see things going is we're going to keep seeing more and more of these ransomware attacks, which 
all come down to phishing emails. Again, the non-sophisticated, clicking a link, you didn't have antivirus, your computer wasn't up to date, and you know that malware was able to get in there, and from there it can just expand its wings. And I think we're going to see a lot more of those attacks until we start seeing the government kind of get involved in offering resources because it can be costly, it can be inefficient, you know, it can be the financial Achilles heel of a company to either invest appropriately if they have a lot of exposed infrastructure to the internet or to invest after they've been attacked. You know, and I think we're kind of seeing this right now. Like I know the U.S. government is coming out with more stringent cybersecurity rules after some recent incidents. And then the Canadian government has also talked about rewriting a bill that will make it mandatory to adhere to a certain level of security compliance if your company handles sensitive information and sensitive information will be defined by them and and whatnot. But I do see things moving in that direction where companies, certain companies are going to be required to undergo regular audits in order to kind of accept payments or to store personal information. And I think, you know, like the industry is just going to keep growing in that sense. But I really think attackers are going to stick to these non-sophisticated techniques because it's easy and anyone can do it. You don't have to be a smart guy to do it. Yeah. And it's cost effective. You know, it's just a numbers game, as you originally said. Uh, one of the things I do now is I all my emails, unless they're in my, you know, like um, senders list, all through junk. So the image, oh, everything goes into junk. And then I can go in and, and do I want to load the images or not? So I don't know if that's a good thing as well, but it keeps a filter on it, another filter, you know, that it doesn't come straight into your inbox as such, you know? Yes. Well, listen, I've got one final question to ask you before we finish. And um, again, I always ask all my guests this, is it if you had your time again, if you were that lad leaving grade 12, right? And now you have all this knowledge and experience. What would you tell yourself now? I would tell myself to not be afraid to get out in the community and start networking and meeting people. You know, I know a lot of very intelligent people, far more intelligent than me, you know, make a lot more money than me. People will never be able to compete with, but they've often struggled in the industry because they haven't been able to go out and meet people and network. And their path was, I think, rather slow and difficult in many ways because they had to prove themselves through being extremely intelligent. Whereas if you just go out and do the right networking, you know, and you meet the hiring manager at company ABC, and they're looking for someone who's young, up and coming, has a lot to prove and is ambitious, you know, you're going to get scooted in the door long before the guy who might be so intelligent, you know, but his only chance is sending a resume that gets put on the pile of 200 other resumes, you know, as opposed to kind of networking. And, you know, so, so that kind of be my advice is don't be afraid to get out there and, you know, meet people, even though it can be kind of hard to step out of your comfort zone, especially in such an introvert oriented career. But, but that would be my advice. Don, you know what? It's been a real pleasure to catch up and I really appreciated your time this evening. And um, you know what? I've learned so much just in, under the hour that we've had a chat, uh, you know, and I think you gave us some really practical advice and we'll definitely put those links at the end of the, uh, the write up for the show. Uh, so people can click on them and follow them. But thank you again for being very open and honest about it, you know, and, and very transparent. And I think that helps, you know, it helps the community out there and it helps us to hopefully minimize these, uh, these attacks, these malware and virus attacks. So thanks again. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks so much, David. It's, it's always a treat. And I really look forward to being able to do another podcast with you down the road and, you know, just hearing more of your podcasts as time kind of goes on here. Perfect. Well, thanks again. I really appreciate your time. Look after yourself. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much. You've been listening to On On The Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week was Donald Ashdown, making cybersecurity simple. 
Remember, there are more conversations coming up in this series. Just look out for On Another Track with me, David Wilson, on your local podcast platform and subscribe. This has been a BritCam production for Urban Aspect Incorporated. Keeping us safe on the roads of North America.